Well, good morning, church. It's a pleasure to have each and every one of you with us this morning as you take your seats. And as you do, grab your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians this morning. Uh, we've been in a series that we've entitled Ready, and we've been learning from the first century uh, church of uh, the church at Thessalonica, which was a, a church in the city of uh, Thessalonica, which was a first century city. It's the 21st century city as well in northern Greece, uh, still alive. Yeah, Paul had written this letter after spending some time uh, with this church, leading them to the cause of Jesus Christ, leading them to understand that Jesus Christ can be their Savior and Lord. And after persecution comes, after being driven out of the city by haters of the gospel, Paul uh, heads down to the city of Athens in southern Greece, and he wants to know what's going on in the life of these dear friends, these dear loved ones uh, that he has come to uh, enjoy their company and, and care uh, so much. And so he sends his young disciple Timothy to go see how things are going. Are they still walking in the ways of God? Are they still in fellowship with one another? Are they living out the commands of Jesus Christ uh, to serve one another and care for one another and love one another and to be a light in a, in a dark world? And Timothy comes back and Timothy says, yeah, they're, they're doing great work and, and they're loving on one another and they're doing all the things, Paul, you told them that they needed to do as followers of Jesus Christ. And Paul sits down and he writes this letter and this letter is a letter of affection, a letter of love and concern for his, his people, his friends. And it's a letter where he answers questions with regards to the issues of life. And we're going to learn today even with regards to the issues of death and the future. Now Paul has spent a lot of time telling the people uh, of the church of Thessalonica that they need to be ready. They need to be ready to honor God and to serve God, uh, to live each day to the glory of God. And the reason why is Paul's going to finish up this letter. Here in the next couple of weeks, we'll be finishing this first letter of Paul's and moving into the second letter he writes to this church. And he wants to prepare them for a day. We're going to learn that the first day that many of us may find ourselves in is the day of our death. What's going to happen when we come to the end of our lives, whether um, in, in, a, in a way that maybe we're young and don't expect it, or maybe as we grow older and older and as we see uh, the time of our life coming to an end, how are we to be ready uh, for uh, our meeting of the Lord? But he also speaks to a second group of people. The second group of people that he speaks to is he speaks to a group of people who may be living as to what the Bible says is the coming of the Lord. Jesus Christ has promised that he will come back for his people. And Paul says, I want you to be ready for these two events, because everybody will fall into one of these two categories. Either you need to be ready to know how you're going to die, and, and what spirit and what condition your spiritual uh, life is in at the moment of death, or are you going to be ready at the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Now, it would seem that the Thessalonians, as they were young in their faith and new to this whole thing of Christianity, had gotten in their mind, maybe because someone taught them or because they had conjured up some understanding, they thought, now 15 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Jesus had said, I'm coming soon. And they had assumed that Jesus was going to come back before uh, they were to die. Here's the problem. As time continued to move on, as history continued to move as it always does, and, and time continues to move on, 
we learn that some of the Thessalonians start to die. And the question is, what happens to our dearly beloved? What happens to these saints who love Jesus with all their heart and their life? What happens to them in death? And what are we to expect of them if Jesus comes back after they die? What's going to happen with them? These are important questions because they involved people that they loved. Now these people, the Thessalonians, absolutely loved God. They loved Jesus. We learned early in this series that Thessalonians had left their gods, plural, to serve the one true and living God. And that wouldn't have been easy. In first century Thessalonica, northern Greece, their culture was inundated by the idea of Greek mythology. They had all kinds of gods, and their whole focus and their whole desire every day they lived life was to try to in some way please the gods because the gods were a capricious group of people. I mean, if you did what was right, then they would show benevolence. If you didn't do what was right, they would show great wrath, and, and they would find themselves intertwined into human life. And so you never wanted to be on the wrong side of the gods. This was understood because one of the favorite vacation spots of first century Thessalonians was Mount Olympus. Some 70 miles away stood the, the, the residency of the gods. And they would go and they would pay homage and do a pilgrimage, uh, these Thessalonians, to this place where the gods reside, asking them, pleading to them, that they would find favor in their eyes. But they had turned away from all of that. And they had turned to the one and true living God, the God who says that though I could pour out my wrath and judgment upon you because of the work of Jesus Christ that you've received into your life, you are no longer aliens and strangers to me, but you're friends, you're my sons and daughters. And so they were impacted by this impressive and incredible ministry of Paul and the incredible ministry of the gospel. But it doesn't alleviate the questions that they had. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know your mind and your heart are filled with questions. It doesn't mean you don't have faith. You just don't understand it fully. And we come to a text where there's questions by these Christians. What are we to make of these things in life? What does God have to say with regards to these truths? And what we're going to see before us in our passage today is Paul's answer. It's really, it's God's answer to the questions that were at hand. Let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Starting in verse 13, here's what he says. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. This is from God, he says. That we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. 
As labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, they will not escape. But you are not in the darkness, brothers, that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Let's pray. Father God, I ask that you would uh, take this text and apply, uh, allow us to apply it to our hearts and our minds this morning, and that we might be able to uh, discern what your will and plan in light of this text is for us, that we would make um, decisions about what we do and, and how we interact and how we reach out and minister to others in light of the truths that we've learned. Lord, we are so thankful that whether in death or, or at your coming, we can have a future that is filled with hope. So, Lord, I pray that we might be able to encourage one another with these words. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, your heart's pounding at a high rate of speed. Your multitasking ability is in high gear. You have all the kids working around the house with warp speed. Time is short and there is so much to be done. You try to make every shortcut that you can. During all of it, you're trying to hide every belonging, every mess that's been around your house for the last week. You're doing all that you can to try to get things cleaned up. And then at the moment that you're not prepared for, you hear one of the kids yell, they're here, at which you grab anything that is around you that's left on the ground or on the counter, and you throw it into that one closet that we all have, right? That closet that we can barely shut at this moment in time. And we pray that it's not going to swing open and hurt somebody because it's jam-packed with our junk. Of which we go to the front door and we greet our guests sweating bullets. We say, it's good to have you here. How many of us, from one point or another, have found ourselves unprepared for company? Unprepared for the visit of someone important in our lives? Now, there's a couple reasons why we're unprepared. The first reason, and and not to beat you up over it, the Badals have had this happen uh, far more times than we want to say, but one of the reasons why this happens is we're just busy doing other things, right? We we know people are coming over, but but at the end of the day, we've got busy lives. The calendar's full of things. We're going here, we're going there, and and we just recognize we're we're busy people. And so we're ill-prepared for that moment in time when people are going to come to the house. The second thing is, is that um, what we envision can be fixed in an hour would take a construction crew three weeks to accomplish, right? The house was never in a, in a good enough of a shape for having company over, uh, and we thought we could take care of it in an hour. It would have taken weeks. We were ill-prepared because we hadn't done the maintenance, if you will, uh, on the housekeeping to be prepared for our guests. The final thing is, And this one always seems to get me in trouble, is the idea that I always have more time than I really do, right? 
that you always think, well, there's more time and, and, and there'll be time for this and there'll be time for that. And, and we waste our time or we spend our time in other places and then we look at the clock and the clock becomes our enemy. We're not ready for the visit. We're not ready for company. Well, the Thessalonians were a group of people who were ill-prepared for the company or the visit of two guests. First of all, the guest of death that faces and, and, and comes to all people, or the coming of the greatest guest of all time in all of history, Jesus Christ. And Paul says, I want you to be ready for company, because if you're not, this isn't just going to make a, a group of people at your front door feel a little awkward when you ask them to wash the dishes that are still in the sink. I've been there, done that. Okay? They'll understand, but here's the thing. The Bible tells us in all, listen, all of, of Christianity agrees to, to these things. Whether you're Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, whatever denomination you are, you can agree. We all agree on this, these truths. First of all, that at the point of death, we all face judgment. Every man, woman, and child will face judgment and stand before an almighty God and give an account for how we lived our lives. Number two, all Christians of all stripes agree that Jesus Christ is coming back. They can differ about the time and the method and, and some of the nuances around it, but we all agree that Jesus Christ is going to come back a second time. Except this time, he's not going to come as a cooing baby in a manger. He's going to come as the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he is going to come to exact judgment on evil and sin. And are we prepared for that? Well, we learned today that the Thessalonians uh, that Paul was writing to were ill-prepared for that moment. And our text speaks to unprepared Christians, whether in the first century or the 21st century, who find themselves not ready. And again, the same reasons you're not ready for company are the same reasons many of us aren't prepared for the coming of our Lord or even the coming of our own death when we will stand before God. We're unprepared, again, for the same reasons we're not ready for guests. We're busy doing other things. We know that deep down inside, someone's showing up, that Jesus is coming back, but, but we find ourselves busy filling our calendars with all sorts of temporal things. Our lives are in such chaos that, that here's the thing that we think of. And I used to think of this as a younger uh, adult. Well, I can live how I want to for a certain period of time, and as I get older, I'll start cleaning things up, because then there's a higher rate of of fatality or, or, or death, mortality, uh, I'll clean things up before it's too late. But as we learn, we don't know the time or the hour of our death. We don't know the time or the hour of the coming of the Lord. So you're gambling your eternal stake on that issue. The final thing is, is that we think we'll have more time. There will be people at their death who will have all kinds of regret thinking, I wish I would have had more time. There will be those at the coming of the Lord who will say, but wait a minute, I wasn't ready. Jesus tells a uh, story of a parable of ten brides who are waiting for their grooms to come. And they're ill-prepared. Some of them are ill-prepared. They run out of uh, oil for their lamp and they're not ready for the coming of the groom. And Jesus says we must all be ready, watchful and prayerful for the coming of the Son of Man, to the coming of Jesus Christ. And so Paul addresses this issue. And he tells these people, okay, here's the answer. Here's how you can fix it. But before he does, he addresses the problems that we face. Write that down in your outlines this morning. The problems we face as human beings. Within our text, Paul gives two problems that face us as humanity. 
And he tells us we got to understand our problem before we can understand the solution. We've learned a singular truth throughout this letter. The singular truth throughout this letter is that the gospel is our answer. That whatever our problem is, whatever our struggle may be this morning, no matter what background we have, no matter what nationality we are, no matter what's in our bank account, the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ being God, came to earth, lived a holy and perfect life, went to the cross. We celebrated that with Pastor Steve around the communion table. He gave his life. He died the ransom death for you and I, meaning he became our substitute. That by accepting his free gift of salvation, we might have eternal life in him. Paul has told these people that the answer to our problem is the gospel. But the gospel has many different facets and elements to it. It isn't just simply an insurance card we have if something goes wrong. It affects all of who we are. And so just as the Thessalonians sought help from Paul... And from God, we do too. And that's why we pick up this book every week and we open the same book again and we say, Lord, answer our questions. Help us understand how we are to look at life, how we are to look at death, how we are to look to the things of the future, how we are to understand the things of the past. And what Paul tells us is that when we look to the gospel, we will see some things about ourselves. Like a mirror, it shows us our imperfections. Like a mirror, it shows us areas that need to be fixed up. And, and so he places the mirror before the people and he says, the first thing I want you to see about human beings, us all included, is that we have an enemy. And that enemy is found in what I'd like to call the hopelessness of death. The hopelessness of death. There's a motto that we live by. And it's one that's important uh, for two reasons today. First of all, we know that there are two givens in life. Death and taxes, okay? Taxes are due in a little over a month. Don't forget that. April 15th, you got to get that done. So I'm going to leave that be. You figure you're all good citizens, you'll pay your taxes. So let's deal with death this morning. Paul says, listen, I want to answer some questions regarding the issue of death. And these people had, had had some questions, and it seems as if there were people dying around them, and they wanted to know what happens to Christians who die. In light of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, what do the followers of this Savior, of this Lord who has died, who went into a grave and who came out, what, what will happen to us? This same Jesus who walked in front of his friend Lazarus's grave and announced, Lazarus, come forth. And after four days of being in the grave, Lazarus comes out of the tomb. What's going to happen to followers of Jesus Christ when they die? And Paul says, we got to answer this question. And so he does. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to be ignorant to these facts. So let me tell you a little bit about death. Quite frankly, death is the most horrible thing that we can face as human beings, right? I mean, there's a lot of bad things in our life. I mean, if you really think about it, there's a lot of things that can drive us absolutely crazy. But death, there's no competitor with regards to the sorrow and pain. Death goes against everything we know about life. It shakes the very foundations of those who are gripped by it. My life, listen, is characterized. It has been changed because of one singular moment when I was 14 years old, the death of my older brother, 16 years old Chris, 
who died in a car accident. And I remember with such vivid memories of that day, unlike any other day that I've ever lived in my 39 years on this planet, I remember going to school. My brother, many of you may not know this story, my brother had gone to a youth group event through this church, uh, to a youth group event, and uh, was a, it was a Sunday night, and uh, he was supposed to be home uh, around uh, 11 o'clock. The one night, the first night my mom had ever fallen asleep while any of us were out, she fell asleep and she woke up the next morning and Chris wasn't home. Of course, every concern can take place, but Chris was a popular kid. He had always had friends. He was probably at one of the friends' houses. It was in September, and so I was heading off to school as a freshman at Hinkley Big Rock. And uh, my parents said, get, in, get on the bus, head to school. It's around 7 o'clock in the morning. If you find your brother, you tell him he's a dead man, right? That's what we say. He's in trouble. You don't, you don't not show up home. You don't, you don't do that. It was uncharacteristic. So they're calling around, trying to figure out where Chris is at, where Chris is at. I head to school thinking, boy, my brother's in a lot of trouble. And it was always great when your brother was in trouble, right? It's always fun when you got to see that. So I go to school, and, and, and unknowing to me, some of the parents of my classmates had taken my brother's body out of the car wreck that he was in. So word around school had already come. I thought I had a body odor issue. I may have already anyway, but, but I thought there was something really going on because I saw people talking. And there was word going on. I'm like, boy, Chris must really be in some trouble if, man, I'm hearing his name and going about. And then the teacher, one of the teachers came in my math class, third hour, and says, hey, Tim, they need you in the office. And I came out of my third hour class and I looked down the hallway and I see my dad and I'm like, okay, Chris is really in trouble. Dad's at school, you know, your dad doesn't usually show up to school. And then I saw the principal and I saw the guidance counselor and both of them are crying. Again, my thought is, boy, my brother really did a bad thing. If he made the principal cry, my goodness, this, man, this will be an epic story which I walk the long hallway in my school and I get to my dad. My dad says, we need to go home. And I said, well, where's Chris? Is he in trouble? He says, we need to get home. My dad trying not to tell me in front of now a passing period of kids that I've lost my brother. We walk out. I demand at the front of my school building or school that I drive by every day. And he looks at me and he says, son, I got to tell you some very hard news. Chris is dead. In that moment, I cannot, and if you've experienced death of a close loved one, especially in that kind of violent way, I cannot tell you the absolute pit of darkness you fall into in that moment. And I remember thinking it was the most gorgeous September day, one of those beautiful ones where, where the weather is just beautiful, and I remember just feeling this utter contrast of what was taking place. I remember driving home, the five-minute trip home, and all of the things going through my mind, watching my younger brother who is in the car with us, just bawling his eyes out because it's starting to really sink into him. He knew the word much sooner than I did. I remember getting home. And the most horrific, horrific noise I've ever heard in my entire life, I heard that day. I came in and I saw my mom in the foyer of our, of our uh, uh, house. She's on the ground and the police officer, the Kane County Sheriff's Department, has two officers there and she's pleading at the feet of these men, quit lying, bring me my son. And just sitting going, what has happened? What has just taken place? We were a happy family. Everything was going fine. We had our problems, we had our issues, we had our concerns, but we weren't ready for this. Death is a horrific thing. 
I've only began to understand the loss of a son now that I have three of my own. Oh my goodness, the pain and sorrow my parents must have felt. The agony. To lose a brother is one thing. To lose your firstborn son is quite another. Death is an absolutely horrific thing. And the Thessalonians are saying, wait a minute, we had loved ones who've died. What do we do with this? Where does our faith fall into play with this? Counselor J. Adams puts it this way. What a great quote he has. He says, grief may be called a life-shaking sorrow over loss. Grief tears life to shreds. Amen to that. It shakes one from the top to the bottom. It pulls us loose. We come apart at the seams. Grief is nothing less than a life-shattering loss. The English word bereaved literally is to be broken up. During grief, other emotions like anger, guilt, and fear are often involved and they get tangled together with deep, penetrating soul and sorrow. And so, Paul, how are you going to answer this? How are you going to look at the mom who lost her son? How are you going to look to the husband who's lost his wife? How are you going to look to the kids who no longer have a mom and dad? Where does the gospel have an answer for this? And Paul says this. Paul says, we grieve... But we do not grieve as those who do not have hope. And so he separates the two. He says there are those who grieve, who have hope, and there are those who grieve, who do not have hope. I find it quite amazing that Paul separates the Christian not in triumph from the unbeliever, not in triumph. He separates the believer and the unbeliever in tragedy. What that means is that we have an opportunity, not in our triumphs, everybody's happy in triumphs, the human experience is is that we all do well in triumphs, but how will the Christian who's been changed by the gospel live out tragedy? That's a whole nother thing. I want you to notice a couple things that Paul says in this text. Number one, he does not say that Christians, even though they have hope, shouldn't grieve. Our family grieved. Our family struggled. And I'll tell you, that last part of that quote that it conjures up all of their emotions, man, it it was brutal. That year after, you never knew where any of us were at, if we were having a good day or a bad day. And and, And so you just kind of just walked on eggshells. Because our emotions were all over the place. We dealt with it in in a struggle. And here's the thing. Paul doesn't say, all right, because you have the gospel... Because you're people of faith, you, you're not going to grieve, so don't just smile. So-and-so died. Smile. Hey, Jesus is Lord. I once heard a, a pastor say, and, and I disagree with him wholeheartedly, he obviously hasn't lost anybody close. He said, faith-filled people don't grieve. That's just not true. Notice David, he grieves for days at the loss of his son, his baby, the one that was born to him from Bathsheba. Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus in John eleven thirty eight, it says that he looked to the tomb and he saw all that was going on. And the shortest verse in the Bible is one that is so pointed and points to the humanity of Jesus, though he was God. Jesus wept, filled with grief. The Apostle Paul says in the book of Philippians that his friend Epaphroditus is dying. And he wants to go back home, and he's now gone from the deathbed to now getting better. And he says, what relief it is to me to know my friend isn't dying anymore. It was more than I could bear. Grief is something that is true for the believer 
in Christ and the unbeliever alike. But it is not a prohibition against grieving, but Paul says, how do we practice this thing called grief? You see, in our world, our world is helpless to this issue of grief. It's amazing that as non-believers look at death, they have no answer. Oh, they fill the, the moments of that time and the wake line filled with pleasant platitudes, little niceties. But there's no hope, there's no anchor. They're just throwing out these ideas and they're doing so, and please hear me, from all good places. But there's nothing, there's no bedrock of which they can build a theology of grief without the person and work of Jesus Christ in their life. And so what the world does is the world tries to remove the stench of death by putting those niceties around these things. Good thoughts, I'm thinking good thoughts for you today. And just like funeral flowers, after a couple days they wilt and die. What is the hope? Where is the hope that Christians have when it comes to death? We know the world doesn't have the answer. Notice the second problem that the the world has, and that is the hedonism of life. Hedonism is the pursuit of self-indulgence and self-gratification. Hedonism is built in, in our culture. It's all about me. It's all about me. There's an all-inclusive resort in Jamaica that I used to see commercials for, hedonism. What it meant was your way right away, any way you want it, however you want to live. And I don't even want to get into the details of it. It, it probably is pretty ugly. But it's all about you. And people today in, in our world are living that way, some in more benign ways than others. And, and some of us even struggle with that. Even though we know Christ, we, we constantly are dealing with this attack of, of the old way of life that says, yeah, it is about me. It's about my wants, my desires, my preferences. And here's the problem. The reason why life is an issue for the world is because they do not have hope. You see, if and we talked about this last week, if life is a circle, a merry-go-round that we jump on for 70 or 80 years and then jump off, and are done, then life has no meaning to it. But if life is a line, as the Bible seemingly tells us, it has a beginning, it has an end, and I want to remind you, he was, God was with us in the beginning, he made us, he made us um, in the secret place in our mother's womb, knitting us together, he was there at our conception, he was there at, 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 at our gestation period, he was there and walked with us in our entire lives, and then he is there in our death. If God is with us from the beginning to the end, and he's our creator and he's our judge, then life is in a circle of meaningless lives. But it's a life we've got to understand what our meaning is, what our purpose is. And if it's God who created us, if it's God who planned our lives and has walked us through this, then we better figure out what God wants for us. But the world says, we don't need God. We don't need him in our lives. I don't need anybody telling me what to do. I know what I'm feeling. I know what I'm wanting. So let me do what I want to do. I'm the captain of my ship. And so this is what happens. We live lives in the world of temporal ups and downs. I was driving home from a meeting on Friday. And as I was driving home, I was listening to a radio station. And the guy on the radio, the DJ, was giddy. It's Friday! 
Woohoo! And all this crazy music started playing. Hey, tell me what you're doing this weekend. This is going to be great. This is going to be wonderful. And people are saying, I'm going to go do this and I'm going to go do that. I'm so happy. It's so great and wonderful. And there was a party going on. I can assure you, I'll go to the same radio station Monday morning. And it won't be so excited. All right, everybody, another week. Drink your five gallons of coffee. Wipe the sleep from your eyes. Get over the hangover of the weekend activities. Here we go again. We work for the weekend. The weekend comes. We expel all of our money, time, and effort in making ourselves happy just to get back onto the circle, if you will, of doing the same thing over and over and over again. And what's the results? Nothing. At the end of the day, we die, and it's all over. What helplessness. In death. But we fill ourselves thinking, if I just get enough, I'll be happy. C.S. Lewis, the great British theologian, put it this way. A hedonistic idea of life is like trying to get a thirst quenched by drinking salt water. You drink, you drink, you drink. But the problem is, salt water has certain characteristics to it that make you only want to do what? Drink more. And it will, it, you will literally kill yourself by drinking salt water because your body will not be able to address the issues of the water going into your life. It will never quench your thirst and it will never give you an ability to say, I'm fulfilled. So the world goes about without God, apart from God, seeking to quench its proverbial thirst and it's unable to do it. The world has two problems. Some of you this morning have two problems as well. The hopelessness, what happens when I die? And my life is hedonistic. It pursues the things that are all about me. I become my own God. And in the end, I'm learning. There's no fulfillment in life. That's our problem. What do we do with this problem? What does the gospel say to this problem? Paul says, I don't want you to be unaware. I've got some answers. God has shared with me some answers. And notice the second point, the prescriptions that God gives his people. So he says, I want you to see in the backdrop, there are those who have hope and there are those who don't have hope. There are people of the day and there are people of the night. There are people who are sober and there are people who are drunk. There are people who are alive and there are people who are asleep. There's all these distinctions in our passage that Paul is laying forth. And he says, listen to me, the gospel has the answer. Jesus is the answer. And so now he methodically breaks down the problems. Notice what he says first. He says, let's address the issue of death. And by addressing the issue of death, he says, let's talk about the Christian's rest. What is the rest? Paul says in our text, in verse 13, that we do not need to grieve because Christians have died in our lives because they're asleep. Notice in the text, they have fallen asleep in verse 14. That word is important there, asleep. Today, many of you are going to leave this church and you're going to go home, you're going to eat a great lunch, and you're going to go turn on the TV. I know this is what you're going to do. You're going to say you're going to do all this yard work, but you're not. You're going to go sit in front of the TV. You're going to start sitting upright, but at some point, inevitably, you're going to fall over into some laying position on the couch, and you're going to fall asleep. You're going to take a nap. Now, you've done this before, right? 
And never, listen, never has your wife or your husband or your kids walked in to you taking a nap and they've walked in and seen you asleep and yelled, oh my gosh, someone come and help. They're asleep. What are we going to do? Well, why don't they do that? Sorry, someone was asleep. I just waked them up. Okay? Why don't we do that? Because we know sleep is temporary. We know sleep is something that you will inevitably, even our teenagers, will wake out of. Rip Van Winkle, he woke up. Sleeping Beauty, she woke up. We always wake up. Okay? We always wake up. It's a temporary thing. And the reason why we don't freak out when someone is sleeping is because we recognize as human beings that sleep brings rest, recuperation, a reprieve from the tensions of life. I know we every once in a while have some nightmares along the way, but for the most part, when we sleep, our body is at rest. It's a good thing. We wake up with a sense of refreshment. And what Paul says is, listen, those who have died in Christ, they're asleep. Now, I want to make something very clear here. When we talk about being asleep, does not mean when those who die in Christ are unconscious to the things of the world. What it's talking about is at the point of death, there's a great divorce that takes place. Our bodies go into a coffin or into a grave. Our spirits go to be with the Lord. That's why Jesus, when he was being crucified, someone, uh, a, a thief next to him, one of the thieves mocked him, another thief on the other side said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He says, listen, truly, truly, I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. Oh, your body's going to a grave, but you're going to be with me. Paul addresses this issue in the book of 1 Corinthians, where he says, you know, I'm not sure, he does it in Philippians as well, I'm not sure what's better, to be on the earth in my body or to be present with my Lord without a body. And he kind of battles back and forth, and he comes to this conclusion. It is better to be without my body and be in the presence of the Lord with my spirit at my death than it is to be in the earth completely uh, embodied. He says it's better to be with the Lord. Now, this is an important truth for a guy who lost what was a great role model in my life, my brother Chris. What's happening with him right now? The Bible says that absent from the body, we're present with the Lord. And so I can have an assuredness that my brother is in the presence of the Lord. Your loved ones who have followed Jesus Christ are with the Lord in an unbelievable and unspeakable bliss. It's not fully heaven yet. What I mean by that is their glorification hasn't taken place yet. They have not had their resurrection. We'll talk about that in a moment. But they are, at a good, they are in a good place. Now Paul then says, okay, listen. What's going to happen? Well... He says, listen, at some point in the future, Jesus Christ is going to come back. So now he starts merging these things together. And he says, listen, the dead in Christ will be the ones who will be united to Christ. So Christ is going to come back. Remember, all Christians everywhere, they believe that fact, Jesus Christ is coming back. And Paul says that those who are dead in Christ will come with Christ in their spirits. But before he comes to the earth, those who are dead will have their bodies resurrected just as Christ's body was resurrected. Their bodies will be resurrected and they will have the resurrection of their bodies in the air. Notice verse 17. Notice what Paul says. 
He says the following. Uh, Let's start with verse 15. For we declare this by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And so we're going to see that take place. Here's, Here's the thing. The reason why you and I can have hope when people die around us is because we recognize it is not goodbye, but it is simply, I will see you soon. That was seen in my parents' life. So they're sad. That same day we have to go, and uh, we've got to go and identify the body of Chris. So we go to Mercy Center Hospital. The four of us that are in the Badal family go. We have some friends here from the church that came with us, and they said, you guys go in, you can say your goodbyes. And so we go into the basement of Mercy Center Hospital, into the morgue area, and there in a very sterile and cold room uh, is laying our lifeless loved one. In the hope that I didn't understand and didn't know at 14 years of age was something I've come to understand because of my parents' example. My father, with great tears in his eyes, huddles this little family that's completely broken And he says, this is why we believe in Jesus. It's for moments like this. And my father, and many of you know this story, begins, he's got the worst voice, singing voice. I mean, it's terrible. And he led our little choir of the Badal family in hymns to the Lord, praising God. Why? Because we have a Savior. He lives. And if Christ lives, then we will live. And I looked at 14 years and I said, where is this hope coming from? If I was my parents, I'd shake my fist at God. No one has served like my parents have. My parents said, here is a reminder on why we serve the living and true God. Because there will be a day where Chris will be reunited with us. Because we will be meeting him in the air. The Christians rest. Notice, he then then says, hey, so you got to be ready for death. Are you ready for death this morning? Are you ready for the time of your death? The Bible says no one knows the hour or day of our passing. We don't. We don't know what today might bring. Listen to me. Always be careful getting out on Bliss Road. We, I, I thank the Lord all the time. That's a scary way to pull out because those Sugar Grove people don't slow down. Okay? You may leave this place today. No one's going to go through the bliss entrance and exit now, okay? You're going to leave today, and you don't know what will happen. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. Man, our mortality is so fragile. We've seen loved ones in this church that have died, some somewhat expectantly. They've gotten older and, and frailer, and we understand that. But not too long ago, we lost Thomas Fortorma, 43 years old. Where did that come from? Why did that happen? Do we have hope? Paul says we can because of the gospel. So the death thing is taken care of. Now what about Christ's return? He says, listen, if you don't die, Christ may return at any moment, and are you ready for that? Are you ready for his visit? And because of it, God gives some continual reminders. Notice what he says. He says, all right, for the Lord will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And those who are left, 
who are alive will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet him in the air so that we will always be with the Lord. Go down to chapter 5. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, we do not have to write anything, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and security, sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains from, uh, upon a, a pregnant woman. So Paul says, listen, be ready for death. But then once you're ready for death and you know without a shadow of a doubt you are living for Christ and living for his glory and living out the gospel and have bowed the knee to him and put your faith and trust in him as your only savior, once you've got that taken care of, now you need to look with expectancy to his return. He's coming back and it could come at any moment. Notice the reminder. He says, listen, he might come as a thief. You know, here's the problem with thieves. They never give you a warning postcard. Hey, Tim, or, or the inhabitants of 410 Prairie View Lane, I am going to break into your house tonight. Just want to let you know. I'm going to go after these things, and I'm going to take them, and I just wanted to say thank you very much. Have a wonderful day. You never get that, right? I mean, there's some dumb criminals, but I don't know any criminal that's ever done that. And Paul says, listen, the metaphor that's needed is that Christ's return will be sudden. And it's unknown. In some ways, there will be no warning, if you will, of its happening. You won't be able to pinpoint and say, aha, the thief's coming today. Listen to me. You'll never be the McAllister kid in Home Alone. Remember, he knows when the guys are coming. He's aware of it. No, Jesus says, I'm coming like a thief in the night. You're not going to know it. But then he goes on and he says, like labor pains, these times will come about. Destruction is going to come like labor. Well, here's the thing. Labor comes on suddenly as well. But unlike the thief, labor, while sudden, just like a thief is sudden in the night, labor is expected. For nine months, you are expecting at some point labor. You're not expecting a thief. And so what the idea here is, is that, listen, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ will be sudden, and you're not going to be able to be anything more than prepared all the time for it because it could happen at any moment. It will be, listen, unavoidable. I don't know of a woman in all of human history that said, you know what? I was pregnant. I went through the time of gestation and all of that. And listen, I didn't experience a thing. Baby just came out. You're there. Woohoo! Okay? Just lost the women in the group. Okay? That doesn't happen. You're expecting it. Some of you are dreading it, and rightly so. You know it's going to happen. It's unavoidable. At the end of that pregnancy, there's going to be some pain. There's going to be some toiling. There's going to be some struggle. And you're ready for that, knowing I can't get around it. The coming of our Lord will be sudden, and it will be unavoidable. And so if that's the case, we better be ready. Well, how do we get ready? Very quickly, there's one of two ways you can get ready. You can, you can say, well, the Lord's coming. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go on a campaign and tell everybody that the Lord's coming. I'm going to find a time and date to do it. Here's what we did in May. No, we didn't do, by the way. May 21st, 2011, Harold Camping, a Bible teacher from Family Radio, said, I figured out Jesus Christ is coming. And what people did is they said, we're going to sell everything we have, buy RVs. We're going to paint the RVs so everybody can hear about it. The end of the world is at hand, and you better be ready. Here's the problem. They've interviewed a lot of these people, and they're brokenhearted. 
They gave up everything. Because they thought that what it was is let's pick the hour and the day. Paul says you don't need to know these things. Just be ready. So if that's not what we're supposed to do, what are we supposed to do? We need to be ready for Christ's return. Write that down. It's going to be sudden. It's going to be unavoidable. And at a moment of his choosing, Jesus Christ is going to come. He's going to descend from heaven, the text says. His coming will not be quiet, but it'll be majestic and noisy. There are going to be three sounds. J.B. Phillips puts it this way. One word of command, one shout from the archangel, and one blast from the trumpet of God, and the Lord himself, he will personally come down from the earth, or come from heaven. And so there's going to be a lot of clamor. A lot of things are going to be taking place. And his coming will culminate in his announcement for the dead in Christ to rise. And their bodies will rise. And wherever they are from the four winds of the, or corners of the world, the winds will draw them up and they will meet Christ in the clouds. And we who are still alive will be caught up. That word is where we get the word rapture from. And we're going to meet him in the clouds. There will be a reunion. First, a reunion, listen, with the bodies of the dead, with their spirits. They will once again be complete in their glorified bodies. There will be a, a, a rising and reunion that will take place. We who are left will have our bodies glorified in that twinkling of an eye where Paul says the uh, mortal will put on immortality, the perishable will put on the imperishable. In that twinkling of an eye, we will be caught up and we will be reunited not only with Christ, but we will be reunited with all of those dead loved ones. The saints of old, we will be once and for all in that moment reunited with them. And we will, as verse uh, 17 says, we will be with Christ forever. What an amazing event. Well, how do we get ready for it? It says that we are going to meet him in the clouds. That phrase, meet him in the clouds, I badmouthed Lion King last week in my sermon, so let me speak well of Disney. In the movie Aladdin, Prince Ali comes into town. And that idea of meeting him in the clouds is the picture that Paul would understand from the first century of a dignitary, a king, someone important, coming into a town. And what would happen is all of those who were fans and followers of that king would head out to the city gates and would parade him in, just like the scene in Aladdin. All the singers, all the dancers, all of the, of the uh, fanfare and procession Here's our king, here's our God, and the Bible says we're going to meet him in the air. What that doesn't mean, listen, most scholars don't think that that's outer space. What it means is we're going to leave the ground. Jesus Christ himself will, will show up somewhere on the earth. Many believe that to be the city of Jerusalem. And so that means we've got to move from Chicagoland to the city of Jerusalem. We will do that in a twinkling of an eye. And we will meet him there. Why? So that a watching world will see, this is our king. This is our God. Are you ready for the coming of our Lord? Are you ready for his return? Let me close with this. The church's responsibility. What do we do? Man, this is a lot of stuff. Well, in light of these commands, in light of these truths, whether in death or the return of Christ... Paul gives us some things that we can do. I, I call them uh, the two-word commands. Write these down. In verse 6 of chapter 5, he tells us to keep awake. In verses 7 and 8, he says, be sober. In verses 8 and 9, he says, get dressed. And in verses uh, 
17 of chapter 4 and verse 11 of chapter 5, he says, encourage one another. Encourage one another. So let me, let me close with this. I'm out of time. How you understand your departure, whether in death or Christ's return, will determine how you live your life. So listen, some of us right now, we know, hey, I know Jesus, and I, I like Jesus. He's great to have as a Sunday morning date. It's good to be a part of a church. They do good things for my kids. This is wonderful. Let me tell you something. If the church is not moving you and I to a place that our departure will determine our life, then we're going to blow it. We're going to miss it. The Bible says, at His coming, will He find faith in the earth? So let me ask you this morning. If Christ was to come back this afternoon, are you ready to meet Him? Or are you drunk on the things of this world? Are you living in darkness? Or are you living in light? With sober thinking. Are you asleep? In some sort of uh, stupor that you don't know what's going on around you? Or are you awake and alert and ready for the coming of the Lord? Whether meeting Him in death or at His return. That is the most important question that we can ask. And it is the question that will answer the problems we face in this world of whether death or life are we living for Jesus. So evaluate your life today. Am I ready for His company? Am I ready for His visit? Some of us have got some cleaning up to do. Some of us have got some work to do. And if we're really honest with ourselves, all of us have to do some work with God and evaluate where we're at so that we might be ready in death or at His return so that with joy in our heart we can say, yes, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let's pray. Father God, I come before you and I thank you for this word and I thank you for the truth of your scripture and wherever my listeners may be at today, I pray that they would do some work in their spiritual lives and ask the question this morning, where are they with you? Where are they at in light of your return? Where are they at in light of their own mortality? Lord, I pray that as we look through this text and as we are brought... uh, to the forefront of these issues, that we would see that the gospel is our answer, that we would live in light of that gospel, that we would make the gospel and the life of Christ um, so prevalent in our lives that whatever decisions we make today and, and as we go to our work and school tomorrow, that we might be ready, whatever we may do, that we might be ready for whatever you may call us to. Lord, I pray for the coming of you, of your your son. I pray that it would happen soon. But Lord, I recognize that you wait, not for the comfort of your, your children, but you wait so that all those who have been called will, will receive your message and your gospel. And so today, Lord, we ask that not a single person would leave this place without knowing they're your child and that they're ready to live and, and serve you in a way that will honor you. So Lord, send us forth from this place expectant, busy at work, serving you. Lord, let us comfort each other with these words. The God who was resurrected from the grave is the one who will come back for us. The God who was resurrected from the grave will one day resurrect our lowly bodies. And the one who promises this 
is faithful. So as we fellowship with one another here in a moment, let us comfort each other with these words and encourage one another to live in light of his coming. Lord, I pray we'll be ready for your company, even if it's today. In Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.